0: all right you guys welcome welcome i'm so excited that you three are here with us today on where's my midwife a podcast i can't even express my enthusiasm and excitement for our time together my name is steph heddenkamp i'm the communications director for the big push for midwives campaign we are based in the united states and we advocate for increased out of hospital birth options um, today, we are welcoming three very special, very smart folks. Uh, they've come to us today as uh, members of our guest panel. We have Betty Ann Davis, David Anderson, and Kenneth Johnson. And I want to throw it to you all to please introduce yourselves. Tell us a little bit about yourselves and your work, please. I guess I'll go
1: first since my name seems to be up there first. I'm i um, I'm actually a... Uh Uh, It's Betty-Ann. I'm a home birth midwife, a hospital birth midwife, and a birth center birth midwife. In Canada, we're required to do births in all three settings, and we actually have a quota for the number of births we do in each setting. I'm actually, you'll see a little pull back here, because I'm in Toronto at the moment. Just been asked to to teach the docs and the midwives at a a big Toronto hospital how to do breach, which is great, which is the benefit of having hospital privileges. And I'm also a researcher, of course, in um, safety of home birth and a researcher in breach. And I've been a women's studies prof for about 10 years. Thank you for me. Thank
2: you. I'm Dave Anderson. I'm a professor of economics at Center College. And I was part of the uh, campaign with the big push in Washington, D.C. in 2009 to encourage Congress to increase access to midwives and three of my articles have been on the economics of home birth.
3: I'm Ken Johnson. I'm in Ottawa, Canada, and I'm a retired epidemiologist. I work most of my time now on the climate crisis. However, I was involved with the big uh, Certified Professional Midwife 2000 study that we published in the British Medical Journal with 5,500 planned home births across the United States and Canada. And uh, I work on the breach issue with Betty Ann as well.
0: Very good, thank you all again for joining us. So I wanna just take a moment to go back because I know there's some shared history. You all have worked together for years. If you could share just a little bit about the origins of how you all met and how you have come to do this work together.
3: Well, I can go first on that. After I got together with Betty Ann, I didn't have any choice but to work on it.
1: <laughs> but,
3: That's about 20, th- th- almost 30 years running.
1: Really, the four of us got together, along with Jenny Joseph and a few other people from the Big Push, because, Steph, you um, leading out with, in communications with the Big Push asked us to come to Washington in 2009. I remember very well, because Obama was heading out on his Obamacare, and he wanted. He said he was not going to um, tolerate anything that was the status quo. He wanted things that were innovative and cost-effective, and so we came down to talk to Congress and Senator, Congressmen and Senators, about it.
2: Yeah, and I originally got involved because my sister is a midwife who um, has delivered Tens of thousands of births or babies she's a certified nurse midwife and she and I did some research in 1999 and I think that the big push folks uh, probably some of you all uh, knew about that or knew her and that's how I got into the uh, the Washington DC effort Uh, and then we decided that should turn into an article or two the results that we found for that Uh, and so the, uh, the rest was history. Mm-hmm.
3: Steph, I just have one other thing to say about it. As an epidemiologist, um, I encouraged very much uh, doing safety work on, on home birth because I really felt like epidemiology was a very strong ally of, for midwives because the evidence was um, is very important in the discussion.
0: It's true, and we've been so grateful for that information that you've pulled to the fore to to showcase the evidence to to articulate very clearly the safety of 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 out-of-hospital birth options um, within certain parameters Um, the big push is um, working in all 50 states dc puerto rico the other territories we We are really working hard to make sure that midwives who do specialize in out-of-hospital birth are able to work, able to provide the services so that we can increase access to these services to mothers and families, pregnant people in the United States. So I would like to um, turn now to the newest piece of research uh, that you all have developed together. very recently published, and I I want to understand more about how you all came back together again, all the issues later, to to research and publish uh, this article, please.
1: Well, I I can speak to that. We're going to speak a little bit later about the fact that we've just put out a book called, um, I put it out with um, uh, co-editor Robbie Davis-Floyd, called uh, Birthing Models on the Human Rights Frontier, Speaking Truth to Power. Oh, David, you've got it there. Yeah, I just saw it. I mean, it just came out and I just saw my first copy this week. Um, And uh, in it, we decided, I I approached David. I said, why don't we put together, um, why don't we do an update on what we did in 2009? It's a really important piece of human rights. And United States really is one of the few countries in the world where uh, women don't have the human right to have a a birth at home necessarily in every state or they can't find providers. So he was in and that was, we started doing, working on that, I think, well, maybe five or six years ago, actually.
0: I saw you. Just came out. Betty and I I ran into you um, at a conference in uh, fall Halloween time of 2019. And uh, I remember us talking about it. And I was so excited to hear that the three of you were coming back to write another updated uh, article. And what's tragic and yet very interesting is that the pandemic then hit last spring and that's really put a whole new light on things. Um, you know, One of the things I've been asked about a lot with the big push for midwives is w- what we see happening with an increased demand for these kinds of out of hospital birth uh, maternity care providers is just through the roof anecdotally, we have a lot of stories of midwives being just overwhelmed with the demand, the calls coming in, they've even had to turn people away. We have uh, evidence of so many more news stories being written about the women who are choosing these options and the midwives who are providing them. So while I'm sad that, that the article didn't come out sooner, I'm actually really excited that it came out when it did because there now exactly. is this additional information that we have about it. Do you wanna share more about that?
1: So maybe maybe I should just explain. So we we actually did a chapter for the book and then at the same time um, realized that we should do a whole other article um, when uh, Frontiers in Sociology uh, suggested that there be an article about COVID um, and about the global um, problems of maternity care. And um, Robbie Davis and Kim Gaucho, with whom I just done another uh, edition, uh, have headed out in this... uh, particular series. And so it's actually being published in Frontiers in Sociology. So this title, Pivoting to Childbirth at Home or in Freestanding Birth Centres in the U.S. During COVID-19, Safety, Economics and Logistics, is actually in that article, Frontiers in Sociology. And there's another chapter in the Home Birth or sorry, in the, in the birthing models on the human rights frontier, which has more to do with the history of home birth and the history of the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology statements on home birth and the research on home birth. So there are two um, separate uh, publications which we've all co-authored, but they, are, they really dovetail on each other quite nicely. That's
0: wonderful. So I'd like to start to get into the article, which will provide, you know, a bit of repeating of information. Maybe some of our listeners and viewers will already know, but I think it's important that we just sort of step through it. And I really want to spend quite a bit of time, David, picking your brain about what you noticed on the economics, because I feel like that is something that is really pressing. We know that things um, need to change. We know that we need to find savings. Um, So I just want to kind of start to go go through some of these key things that I pulled out of the piece. uh, And I'd just like you to to talk to them as we go through, please. So the first item, um, we we know that one out of 62 US births in 2017 um, took place in private homes and freestanding birth centers. And that's really how we define out-of-hospital birth. These settings that are not inside of hospitals, in private homes and freestanding birth centers, that's where increasing numbers of women are going for for their births. And and maybe you can talk a little bit about how that is an increase, quite quite substantially over years past.
2: Yeah, it's rather remarkable in the United States how at the turn of the last century, in 1900. Virtually all births were at home, and then by the late 30s, it was half of births, and then by the mid-50s, it was just about 1%, and it's remained very low, Uh, although in the last decade, it has started to creep up uh, very slowly, but this 1 in 62 uh, is not at all um, like what it was just um, a generation or two ago, uh, even in the United States.
3: And interestingly, even though the number, the percentage of home births is very low in the United States, it actually is the country with the most home births every year now, Steph. And that's just happened in the last two or three years, I think.
1: Yeah, it just happened since 2015. That was the first year that it looked like there were more home births in the United States than of all places, the Netherlands, which has been the queen country for and and example for us uh, for home births.
0: That's very interesting. I did not know that. So there's an increasing number of births, and yet there seems to be so much ceiling, so much more that we could do. And so that's something that I'd like us to talk about. But before we do that, I think we all know uh, this information, uh, that we in the US, we spend more on childbirth than any other country in, in, in the world uh, per childbirth, right? So like. The costs are just really astronomical compared to other countries.
2: Yeah, a standard delivery in the United States in a hospital costs 11 or 12,000, whereas in Australia it's about 6,000, and Switzerland it's about five, and the United Kingdom it's about nine, and the Netherlands it's about 3.6. So it is far more expensive here. And part of that is a lack of competition, that with the hospital being the primary uh, way to go, they don't see much competition, uh, which could change in the United States if we started giving more access to midwives.
3: I think, Steph, as well, that correlates uh, those numbers, the lower costs correlate with universal not-for-profit health care in most of those countries, if not all of them.
2: Yep.
0: I was gonna add, you guys, I just read an article today in the Wall Street Journal. It has to do with how in the Trump era, there were certain regulations uh, that were enforced. Uh, Don't know if they'll stick around, but it has to do with transparency of cost in hospitals for individual procedures. Um, And I apologize, I couldn't send that to you uh, right before we talked, but Effectively, it was saying things like C-sections, they vary widely in terms of cost. It could be as much as $60,000 in a particular hospital. It could even be as much as 6,000, much less in that same hospital. And it depends on the insurance of of the woman. Um, And it also sort of was interesting because the article talked about how they just sort of charge what they can, what the market will bear and they also uh, look at their own margins, what they need to make as hospitals. I won't ask you to comment on any of that, but that's something that I'm going to dive into and dig into and try to bring to our listeners and our viewers uh, more about all that. Um, I well, do. And Steph, ask, that,
3: yeah. Steph, that also really matters because uh, at least in Canada, childbirth is the number one reason for hospitalization. Mm-hmm. So the changing the cost of it has a huge impact on the economics for the hospital.
1: Well, and also, if I might also add, um, we've been a, a ten, Ken and I have attended the American Public Health Association meetings for years, and one of the things, uh, one of the groups that's really pushing for universal healthcare coverage, um, has has pointed out that they've actually compared. Um, At one point, for instance, they they compared, I think it was Brigham Young's Hospital in Massachusetts to one of the Toronto hospitals to try to figure out why it was that childbirth was so much reduced in cost in Canada compared to the States. And most of it had to do with administration. Most of it had to do with the fact that everybody here just gets their birth um, basically for free. And it's not, there are not a thousand different types of insurances that they have. And a lot of the, the, the charges and a lot of the, that money goes into all the different clerks and various people who have to deal with all the different um, uh, infrastructures of all the different insurance companies. If you have just one, it becomes very streamlined and it's not part of the major economic cost. It was incredible for them to see that. So just a little interjection on that piece.
0: No, I feel like I'm going to have to ask you guys to come back so we can look at this uh, more closely on that particular point because it just can't be right that, you know, it's like thinking about a, a gallon of milk costing, you know, two fifty in Kansas and costing, you know, $32,000 in Massachusetts. It just doesn't make sense and it, it needs to be examined. So, but again, we'll do that on our next episode with you guys. Um, I want to go forward now um, beyond cost, you know, You would think that we'd have sort of the best maternity care in the world, but in fact, we have the worst outcomes um, from other high income countries, and especially for women of color. Uh, This is particularly um, compelling when we look at what just was released um, on February 8th, um, Momnibus came forward. Many representatives in Congress really want to try to do something, and it's encouraging to see some of this bundled legislation having to do with birth having to do with motherhood and reproductive health, social justice. But I would love for you to talk to this um, as you wish.
2: Yeah, it, it's striking. If you look at maternal deaths per 100,000 live births in the United States, is 17.4, whereas in France, it's 8.7. In Canada, it's 8.6. UK is 6.5. Australia, 4.8. New Zealand, 1.7. And in terms of um, neonatal mortality, the World Bank finds in the United States, it's four per thousand and 25% less in all of those other countries except, uh, Australia, where it's, uh, two, is f- 50% as many, uh, as in the United States. So the differences are striking despite the fact that it's more expensive to have a birth here.
0: Very good. So, I'd like to kind of zigzag a little bit. I just wanted to pull up a slide that shows um, kind of like what we were talking about um, who is attending birth in the US. And I know you said, David, it's creeping up, you know, one in 62 births in uh, a few years ago, but um, in 2017. But in 2018, it looks like what? of births in the US were attended by midwives. And could you just talk to us, David, about how that's different from other countries?
2: I don't know if I have anything clever to say about that. I think that it's important to point out that the midwife attended uh, at that percentage uh, must include uh, many that are not in the home uh, and maybe even some that aren't in birth centers, I'm not sure. but uh, it's th- it's not 10% home birth by any means. That's more like one and a half in, in that vicinity. But maybe Betty Ann and Ken have uh,
1: yeah, other I mean, insights about that. I can just tell you for Canada, for for Ontario it has about 16% um, of uh, midwife attended births, but BC, uh, British Columbia, has 25%. It's great. And they are climbing every year. Um, we've just been legislated for 30 years. We we're not uh, fortunate as the States was originally like it. The States had a midwives in the 1950s um, and we just got legislated in 1993. And in BC a little later. So it, the culture has to change in order for this to work, but it has changed much more quickly in Canada than it did in the States when you realize we've actually got a higher uh, midwife attendance um, now than that the, uh, the, you do in the US.
3: For that slide, Steffi, that you've got up, uh, about ninety percent of those midwife-attended births are in hospital, with, where certified uh, prof- or, uh, certified nurse midwives are catching the babies.
0: Mm-hmm. And those midwives are typically, if I these are my words, under the thumbs of doctors. It's it's so unusual. I have to say, I've never heard of one profession governing another, and yet so many certified nurse midwives have to have collaborative practice agreements with obstetricians and gynecologists. So the OBs actually have control over and say over another um, profession. So it just, you know, the analogy is like how many plumbers are looking over the shoulders of electricians? You know, how many drywallers are looking over the shoulders of roofers? It just doesn't happen. So it's really odd that that happens. And it's unfortunate because we know the hospitals have so many policies that really tie the hands of the providers um, that practice within. But that, again, is probably a discussion for another day. Um, As we move forward and we talk about other barriers to practice, what I can share from my experience, having been a part of the Big Push for Midwives campaign since 2007, is that there is a reluctance for all of our nationally credentialed midwives that we have available to be included Um, In these maternity care programs in our states and state licensure policies that's changing and I suspect the pandemic will even increase the momentum, increase the desire for solutions for auto hospital birth demand is increasing and so policymakers are going to have to respond. Um, I want to show a quick map, but I wondered if you any of you had anything to comment on this slide. True, (laughs) (laughs) It's true. Yeah, they do. My sense of it is it's been a competition um, challenge uh, or a competition centered objection. The doctors are very strong. Typically, um, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists will really enforce their desire and their will for how policy should look through the state medical societies who affect change or prevent change at the policy level in the state houses. And just to share what is up with state licensure, this is a map that we created through the big push for midwives. And you can see in 1970 there were few laws that licensed direct entry midwives, which grew to become the certified professional midwife. We added a couple of states in 1980. At the bottom, you can see the green starting to creep in in 1990, Washington, Arkansas, Louisiana. By 2000, when you all did your groundbreaking study, we had Montana, Florida, California, Colorado, Oregon, Alaska, Minnesota, Texas, New Hampshire, and New York, although there's challenges with the New York law. And then on from there, you see at the top of the map, we have 36 states that regulate CPMs, most through licensure, although in Missouri, it's just authorized by statute and there's no licensure um, regime, if you will. Um, So this is just a quick, uh, you know, capture of of licensure, but we have a lot of states making a lot of progress, Illinois, Massachusetts, there's even a lot of um, momentum in New York. If you don't want to talk about this specifically, it's okay. I just wanted to show our viewers.
3: Well, I'd just like to congratulate the big push on how much uh, progress you've made. It's incredible. Uh, Good on you.
1: Yeah, and and I'd also like to say ACOG has made quite a bit of progress, too, and we're going to discuss that a little later if people are going to stick around long enough, just to go through a little bit of that history, which we do have in our chapter in the birth models, birthing models on the human rights frontier. So, yeah.
0: That's great. And to be clear, Ken, the big push for midwives, we are the sum of our parts. We work closely with coalitions of Midwives associations and consumer organizations at the state level, they are doing the heavy lifting and we're there to provide support and shared learning lived experience strategy messaging, but they really are the heroes in all of this.
3: Well, then I congratulate them all because I know what an uphill battle it is in every state to get legislators legislated.
0: It's true. So that is what we advocate for, that we, if we could have greater access to maternity care by credentialed, licensed midwives in private homes and freestanding birth centers, that this, this is a safe and cost-effective and increasingly popular solution option for our country.
2: Yeah, I think that's the big takeaway that as we're gonna see toward the end, there's really not a trade-off between safety and cost. That It's not the typical situation like when you're buying a car where you can buy a low-end car and it doesn't have side impact airbags or you can pay a lot more money and have a car that's much safer. Uh, The safety levels, as as we'll see, are very much the same. And so it's just a a very cost-effective, great savings of money. if this is more readily available.
1: And it speaks also to that um, concern we've talked about earlier that although the United States has a huge amount of um, expenditure in in every birth, their outcomes are not better than elsewhere.
3: Yes. I th- Steph, I would just like to add that this is exactly the reasons why in Canada they legalized midwifery in the early 1990s through the 2000s, depending on what province. As exactly as it was, had, was affected. The provinces were responsible for the cost of health care, which of course was going up very quickly, like everywhere else, and it, they were compelled by the safety of. So it was just well, an economic decision to make, and now we have flourishing midwifery across most of Canada.
1: Um, the other thing that was happening, and we talk about this in, in um, the book and the article, is that um, the number of OBs, um, number of people remaining in the obstetric profession um, has been slightly um, curbed. and. Um, they're finding in each state that they actually don't have enough obstetricians. They actually really need midwives. And that's what they were finding in Canada in the 1970s as well, is the number of GPs, for instance, the number of p- family docs dropping out of obstetrics, because it's a very difficult thing to deal with, being you know having a, a busy office hours, and then at the end of the day, having a birth. Um, those GPs were dropping off, and midwives came in to replace actually the family docs that used to do births. I love to
0: hear all of that. I feel like, um, you know, the United States, we, we have this issue with licensure. We just saw that map. But beyond licensure, we need to really follow in the footsteps of Canada to the extent that we need to fully integrate midwives into the continuum of care. Because there aren't, to your point, are, are not enough obstetricians to, to provide enough care. We, we've talked about a project in the United States, like Texas, they took the time to map county by county by county, where are their midwives, where are their OBs, where are their birth centers, where are their hospitals. And when you talk about maternity care deserts, there are huge swaths of many of our states, if not all of our states that need more care. And so it makes sense to embrace the care that midwives provide to legalize them and then to integrate them fully into the continuum of maternity care in communities. I guess that was more of a comment than a question. (laughs) Um, So who is providing or who is attending uh, a hospital birth care uh, in the US? And I feel like we probably need to describe this this chart um, a little bit better than maybe what it just looks on its surface.
1: Well, I can take over there. So so zero, there, there might be the auto OB that does home births. I, I know one in California who's doing home births. He's actually doing breeches and twins at home because he's finding it difficult to do those in hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, generally, midwives don't do um, that as much. They tend to do the um, uh, uh, births that are not considered... Um, that will may end up in complications. But the certified, so this what this means is that 7.7% of the, of the births of the CNMs do are done at home. And 70 but 79.3% of the births that the CPMs do, the certified professional midwives, are at home. And that's partly because the CPM uh, licensure um, and the CPM accreditation is the only one in the states that actually requires that midwives learn how to do home birth and requires home birth in their training, uh, whereas the certified nurse midwives don't require it. And also um, not very many of the certified professional midwives actually have hospital privileges. And so it's much more difficult for them to do births in hospital unless they go in and they transfer sometimes to a CNM. In Canada, just as an example of a solution, uh, when we went to legislation, we made a decision that all midwives would have to do births in all settings. That's why I'm required by my college, uh, which is my disciplinary organization, to offer women both home and hospital births so that we aren't trying to corral women into one decision or the other. They have a choice. I remember I'd
3: reading, just add that the, oh,
0: sorry, go ahead,
3: Ken. I just add that the split between the births for the certified professional midwives, it's about f- 54%, I think, are home births, planned home births, and uh, 25%, about 25% are mid uh, in, uh, freestanding birth centers.
0: That's right, that's right. And I believe the CNMs have some proportion of that as well, where some are private homes and some are freestanding birth centers. That's what these numbers show. Um, Betty Ann and and Ken and David, I remember reading in the article um, that there is a reluctance beyond licensure, but there's a reluctance to allow CPMs especially to come into the hospital providing care there in the hospital. But even if that never happens in the United States, it does seem like we could make progress to have, you know, shared records and if you have a low risk pregnancy that you're a midwife and you're helping at home and then something changes and now we're no longer low risk and we need to transfer the care to an OB, that there should be connectivity. There should be transparency, not so much, I don't know. It's like, a, it's like a, an adversarial type relationship where they don't get along. And it seems like we could do a lot to improve that. For the purpose and the benefit of our moms.
1: Well, it, there's you're also speaking to another issue I think here um, in that people often feel that if you aren't trained as a nurse, you couldn't possibly learn how to do an IV or learn how to do electronic fetal monitoring. And I remember at a meeting once with a, the New York midwives um, where they realized that I wasn't a nurse and I was doing hospital births. They said, "Well, do, do you know about electronic fetal monitoring?" I said. Uh, yeah, I work in the hospital. (laughs) And it it didn't dawn on them. Oh, yes, you don't have to go through nursing to do that. Um, We made a decision in Canada not to have um, nurse midwifery and then um, uh, community midwives. We made a decision that all midwives would be midwives. So we just don't have that, that designation. And in that way, we are able to go between those things. I mean, there are actually some people who actually end up in hospital who decide they don't want to be there and they leave and they go home. And we can do that. We basically work with the mother. We make a decision usually ahead of time, but where she wants to go. And sometimes we also go from home birth and then into the birth center and then we end up with a hospital. It it just, it's very streamlined and we consider the home just another institution. It's the number one institution.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's wonderful. I feel like David, you said this or maybe Ken, or maybe Betty Ann. maybe you all did, but this idea that we could expand U.S. midwifery, we could save billions of dollars without necessitating trade-offs regarding safety.
3: I think David said it, and we believe it.
2: <laughs> in our study, we examined uh, we examined the intersection of safety and economic efficiency of births in homes and in freestanding birth centers, and we began that by looking at the cost of each of these types of births, uh, which came from other studies. uh, These are averages for low-risk mothers, uh, and it's about 3,000 for a midwife attended home birth, and 7,200 for a birth center birth, and about 12,000 for a hospital. And Some of those numbers are from studies from a while back, but just today, for example, I contacted uh, a midwife here in the center of America and asked her uh, exactly what she charges for a typical birth. And she said $3,000. So uh, I think they're, they're very uh, relevant, very close to what you'll see if you look around at averages. Of course, there are highs and lows, uh, but these averages are pretty close. And then to look at the potential savings, we started by saying, well, oh, what if 5% More of the 3.9 million annual births in the United States were at home? And what if 5% more of that 3.9 million were in a birth center? And if you multiply 3.9 million times 5% times the difference between the hospital birth and the home birth, uh, then you get that savings of $1.8 billion. And if you multiply 3.9 million times 5% times the difference between the hospital birth and the birth center birth, you get that 959 million. And add that up and you've saved 2.769 billion already. And then you start looking at other differences between the out-of-hospital births overseen by a a midwife and the births in the hospitals. And you see much lower C-section rates even among low-risk mothers. C-section rates among low-risk mothers are around 19% or more in the hospital, uh, and 5.2% is the approximation in homes. So take the difference in those percentages and multiply it by 5% and multiply that by 3.9 million and multiply that by the average cost of a C-section, how much it adds to the cost, which is $5,735, and you've got that. 299 uh, million. That's also including uh, 5% times the difference between the birth center rate, which is 6.1%, and the hospital rate, which is 19%. The savings from the 5% in the homes and 5% in the birth centers add up to that 299 million.
1: And, and Steph, just, just to interrupt your sec, def, uh, David, um, so Steph, you can imagine when we were trying to do this, what it was like to try to figure out, like for instance, l- looking at reduced rate of low birth weight babies, like trying to find examples of where we could actually find that. And w- one of the places we found that was actually in the study that we did on CPMs, but, but these details have really taken quite a while to work out and to update. Just thought I'd interrupt, and, and David's done an incredible job. <laughs> thank you.
2: Uh, thank you. Uh, yeah, Betty Ann mentioned the low birth rate. You see a reduced number of low birth weight uh, babies when, they, when the birth is overseen by a midwife. Uh, it goes from about 2.4% down to 1.1%. Uh, and you multiply that by the 10% reduction that we're testing the savings from and multiply that by 3.9 million and multiply that by the average added cost for a low birth Birth weight baby, which is twenty one thousand eight hundred and seventy six dollars, and you get that one hundred and eleven million in savings. So those two categories, the reduction in C sections and the reduction in low birth weight births, uh, add up to that four hundred and ten million dollars. Uh, and then, I want to make a
3: something? point on that last one too. You now viewers might wonder, well, why? Because a midwife does the birth with the low birth weight Uh, the percentage of babies with low birth weight be so different, but it has to do with the continuity of care that midwives provide because they see women through the whole pregnancy. It's the same people that see them that are at the birth, and I think Jenny Joseph has demonstrated that better than anyone. She's a a black midwife in um, Orlando, and she put together a clinic where she serves low um, low socioeconomic status black women in particular and they often go almost without care if they aren't if if they're not in a situation like jenny offers so when she's nurturing them basically through the entire pregnancy it just makes a difference to their nutrition it makes a difference to uh, all kinds of aspects of their care plus well, the midwives are much more patient about waiting for the birth to happen and not pushing them, inducing them, or calling for and All of those things contribute to a reduced low birth rate.
1: For Jenny Joseph as well, though, um, they're also getting a midwife who looks like them. And that's one of the things we're realizing in Canada. We're realizing among the Indigenous populations, among the Hispanic populations, the Black populations. Everybody really likes to be comfortable with their care provider, and if their care provider looks like them, They feel more comfortable, it's incredible. And that's why we we really feel that the the ethnic and racial um, disparities that have been occurring need to um, be um, given a shot in the arm in terms of having more care practitioners that are indigenous black women that are Hispanic, that are all uh, different ethnicities, because that's a really key thing to what's going on in America and Canada
0: wonderful, and part of the Momnibus um, slate of 12 bills, there's a perinatal workforce um, grant fund, um, and we've advocated through the big push that that includes schools of midwifery because currently it does not. It only includes schools of nursing as well as other physicians assistants and so forth. So we wish to uh, bolster and uh, fund schools of midwifery to make sure that we're producing the midwifery workforce that this country needs. So, David, you were going um, forward with uh, the savings. This slide really, really uh, was eye-opening, and I was hopeful you could share more about it.
2: Yeah, let's talk about competition, because that's one of the things that we find to be a striking force in economics. You know, if you've ever tried to run 100 yards as fast as you can alone and compared the time to... The time when you are racing your nemesis or racing the gym class, you realize competition makes a difference. Uh, When I was doing my undergraduate uh, senior thesis. I looked at how much competition affects prices of shoes in running shoe stores in college towns and I found that every additional competitor lowered the price by about 5% well if we increase the competition from midwives for hospitals, it's clear that things would change. Competition does matter, and so if you assume, for example, that the competition would lower the price at hospitals by ten percent, and then you apply that ten percent savings to the three point five million women that would still be delivering in home, uh, sorry, in the hospital even after the other reductions that we talked about, the 5% additional in the home and 5% additional in the birthing centers, 3.51 million times 10% times the cost of a hospital birth gives you that 4.267 billion in savings from that competition, which I would say uh, would be uh, very easily achieved uh, if we had the numbers of, midwives delivering babies like they have in other countries. Similarly, uh, we saw the striking difference in the C-section rates among low-risk women uh, in hospitals and out of the hospital. If we lowered that rate, which for all births is more like 32% in hospitals down to 15% due to competition 15% Fifteen percent is still above what the World Health Organization sees as very possible. Then, the difference between thirty-two percent and fifteen percent, multiplied by three point five one million births still occurring in the hospital, times that addition of cost for the cesarean, uh, gives you the three point four two two billion in savings. And you add that up, and you get seven point six eight six. Billion dollars in savings to add to the others and add up all of those modest assumptions for what could be achieved relatively easily. We're not, we're not turning the world around. We're just making changes at the margin 5% here 5% there and you get 10.868 billion dollars in savings each year in the United States uh, from these measures.
1: So why do you think Canadians went for midwifery back <laughs> in, the 19, in the 1980s? I mean, we like to say, oh, well, because around um, in Canada, especially in, in Ottawa, we had, uh, or sorry, in, in Ontario, we had the New Democratic Party, and they were very pro-choice and very pro-advocates uh, um, for women. But let's face it, a lot of it had to do with economics. They just recognized that it was going to be cheaper for the healthcare system because we have a universal healthcare system. And so the government does have to pay.
0: Yeah.
2: Indeed. And, this- and in the United States, we might see a little bit more of a glimmer of that under our new leadership. Uh, Biden isn't all in on that, but I think that uh, we're closer to being able to look at healthcare for all.
0: Very good. And it's funny, though, what you said, it like you did, David, just these modest incremental changes at the margins, 5%, because, you know, obviously me, if you know me, you think, you know, Steph's going to say, well, what, okay, so British Columbia, they're at 25%. What's that savings if we go to that, but we have to start slow, we have to start somewhere. And we can, again, have you back uh, for another numbers uh, show and you can tell us, well, okay, yeah, let's get there. And then we'll go to 25%. And this is the billions and billions that we would save. So I'm going to stop sharing my screen at this time on the slides, but I would like to um, keep the conversation going because frankly, Betty ann I know you have some slides that um, you could share with us uh, in the last few minutes of our podcast together, uh, last 15 minutes or so, to talk more about safety.
1: Okay. Yeah, I'll go through this pretty quickly. I just wanted to point out, this is the the, the front of cover of this uh, book that um, um, I've co-edited with Robbie. Um, and this is the name of our chapter, What If Another 10% of Deliveries in the United States Occurred at um, Home or in a Birth Center, Safety Economics and Politics. It's very similar to this article that we've just done, but as I say, it's got more of a history, the national US home birth research history. Um, we've got another chapter on breach and models that nurture cooperation. This is a really important chapter because it, and it's done by um, uh, a family doc who believes that um, the midwives and OBs and midwives and nurses all have to work together. It's a very interesting chapter. It, it faces the competition factor. So I just wanted to point out here, very interesting little piece, because I was living in the 1970s doing birth starting around 75. But this is when the first ACOG statement came out. And the reason we look at ACOG often when we talk about home birth is just because it, it, it makes sense to have at least tacit agreement um, with the organizations that are in obstetrics uh, in all of our nations. And we have to get um, to, uh, we have to really understand how they they think, because on many respects, it, it's an odd thing, but obstetrics has come to own birth in most countries in the world. And at one point, that wasn't true. So what happened, I'm not going to go into that, but I'm just going to say that in 1975, this this was the initial statement, and you're going to see how far ACOG has come on the home birth issue. If you look here, it says this was their first thing they ever. This is the first time they ever put out a statement. And this was, of course, at the time when the hippies were coming into California, and and the all the uh, there was this cultural counterculture revolution, and these home births were starting to become very popular. And so they thought they should have put a statement out. So what they said was ACOG statement of 1975 reaffirmed that labor and delivery clearly present hazards that require standards of safety, which are provided in the hospital setting and cannot be matched in the home station situation. So this is an executive board uh, decision and there was no reference at all to research at all, nothing. This is a great assertion. Then around 1999, Schlenske came up with his study and that was the one that was in California. Do you wanna just speak a little bit to that Ken?
3: Yeah, um, it was a PhD at Stanford. And uh, Peter Schlensky looked at uh, data that had been put together by um, uh, the Rand Corporation, where they were looking at cesarean rates, but they had linked all of the birth certificates with the charts for, I think it was with the charts for women in California over several years. So you had a very rich and systematic database. And when he looked at, uh, home births and, and compared them with similar risk, hospital births and also birth centers, the, the rates of adverse outcomes were very similar, especially for um, uh, perinatal mortality and uh, deaths.
1: It was actually uh, lower in, in home births for perinatal mortality, but look, that was 1999. And this statement of 1975, it was reaffirmed in 1999 here by, by ACOG. So then what happened was we had our first organization in the United States of America that actually was connected to the medical world that made a decision to put out this amazing resolution called increasing access to out-of-hospital maternity care service through state regulated and nationally certified direct entry midwives. And this was because uh, based on the work of a lot of people at that time, Susan Hodges here who is working with citizens for midwifery, Sharon Wells and Alice, uh, Alice, Alice. Salmon. Thank you, Alice Salmon and Carol Nelson. All of these uh, these three people here were were um, these last three were um, from the North American Registry of Midwives. Um, there's myself and Ken working on the CPM 2000 uh, study, and there you are, Steph. And in behind there, you're going to see a little picture of a child. Who um, it's the picture of Pamirath, who was the person who helped us to get funding, and we were all here at her funeral actually just recently. Uh, last year, I guess it was
0: February nineteenth, um,
1: yeah. but 2019. That's right, two years ago now. But 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 the APHA was the very first organization that actually recognized, based on research, that home birth is actually safe. And then, APHA, because they were using the preliminary results of the CPM 2000, um, they put their statement out in 2001. We didn't actually actually get this thing published until. 2005, ACOG finally in 2016 accepted that home birth does occur safely in other high resource countries that have a characteristic common that's commonly that um, the midwives are well integrated. And so we think that that's a really important thing that they've done. They have also, which is really important also in their 2016 to 2020 statements, have acknowledged that they would support the provision of care, not just by CNMs and CMs, but all midwives whose education and licensure meet the International Confederation of Midwives' Global Standards for Midwifery Education. And many of the CPMs meet that, not all, but, but
0: many. Well, so something... ACOG is really... I'm sorry, go ahead. ACOG is so. really, sorry, they're, they're changing, you're thinking. ACOG is coming along, yeah, so to they're, speak. They're yeah. very, and they're,
1: they're, you know, they're, they're coming up to the times. So they really are.
0: Mm-hmm. So on this last point, this is interesting that, that you would share this slide today. Because literally just Monday, uh, the Big Push for Midwives submitted um, edits to the Momnibus bill as they define midwives. And they actually define them with the ICM standards and we actually suggest that that might not be the correct way to define midwives in the legislation because frankly at the state level that's generally not used. And so if a license is provided by a state, if a certification or a registration is provided by a state, that should be the criteria to define a midwife in our opinion. Uh, for the big push. Now that's, you know, to be debated, I suppose. But ICM, you know, there's many different phases and kinds of, you know, pieces of that, um, many of which would exclude midwives. And so it it seems a bit apples and oranges because those standards, that's not what you take to the State House to say I I want my license. Here's my national credential. And then they give you the license. Anyway, we can move on. I just want to make that point.
1: Uh, Well, and also indigenous midwives. And I said earlier in black, there are indigenous midwives in Canada, indigenous midwives do not have to go through um, the college of midwives. They can work in their own community and they are actually legally allowed and permitted to work, which is a really important piece.
0: I agree, and I feel like there is wor- room for that for sure, and, and the states make those decisions, don't they? Here in the U.S. anyway.
3: Um, first of all, what a meta-analysis is, most people don't know. It's, essentially, it's just a systematic summary of the literature. So you set up criteria, a scientific systematic summarization of literature. You start up by, start off by setting criteria for what makes a good study in the area you're going to look at, Then you look through the literature very carefully to find every possible study that might fit the criteria. Then you extract the key information for those and decide which ones actually do meet the quality standards necessary. And then with whatever set of studies you end up with, you then summarize them in systematic statistical ways to come up with estimates of uh, risk. For example, and, and comparison of is the home birth for example, is the home birth risk higher than hospital risk for any number of things from caesarean to perinatal mortality? And we have three major meta-analysis that happened in the in home birth literature all since 2010. The first one was the WAX meta-analysis, which was done by obstetricians in the US. It had a couple, it had a couple fatal flaws. There was a lot of objection to it. And it was ultimately, I, I think, uh, dismissed uh, within the research community anyways. That was about 2011, if I recall correctly. Then in two later, 2016 and two, 2017, 2018, there were two other meta analyses which included, there'd been a couple more really good studies, one in Britain and um, one, one in Australia, I think. And in that, those two analyses, they found again that there was no essentially no difference in perinatal risk, whether you had planned a birth at home or pl- it was a low risk planned hospital birth or a low risk planned home birth. And those were, one was done in Australia, one in Canada, the author, the head authors were Scarf and Hutton. And of course we could spend a long time discussing those, but that's the key, the key takeaway from that is that we do not see when we look at the best studies and combine them all and systematically summarize them We do not find a difference in risk for low-risk women, whether they have a birth at home with a midwife or they have a birth in hospital.
0: It's wonderful to hear, to have the validation of what many of us have believed to be true, but to to hear it from a scientist or researcher means so much.
1: Yes, and also it's really important to realize that um, ACOG has not actually picked up on these two meta analyses because they haven't updated their, um, their statements since 2016. They've been roughly the same since 2016. They keep they keep uh, re- reaffirming their statements, but it's time for them to look at these two meta analyses and then come around. The big changer, COVID nineteen, occurred. I think all of us realized it realized how important it was. When uh, Governor Cuomo in New York State made a decision in a state where certified professional midwives are not legal, he put out an executive order inviting midwives who were certified in other states, including Canada, (laughs) not that we're another state, but we are Mm -hmm. an entity that certifies midwives, he invited us to come and do births in New York State to help them. And what that is, is it, it's a, um, a more or less preliminary suggestion of what might could, could actually happen in New York State in a place where they have uh, for many years not recognized certified professional midwives. They suddenly finally realized that they needed them. And also Washington state got their licensure just before um, COVID hit. So did Kentucky, the state that David's in. And um, so we, we see these things coming. We do see COVID as a, as a, as a game changer because of the fact that the home birth rate is going up. We don't have the data for the States. We do know in Ontario, um, between March and May, it went from 13 to 20% of um, all births were home births among midwives, so we know that COVID really has changed the way women think about about having their baby, staying home. You're staying home for everything else. Why not stay home for your baby?
0: That's right.
1: We and protect your baby say, from
0: the Stay home. Stay home. That's right. Um, I wanted to just make a quick clarification. Um, right before COVID, uh, it was Kentucky and Washington D.C. Uh, that passed their 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 laws, and D.C.'s bill is particularly um, comprehensive and I think it's done really, really well. Uh, our legal counsel, Susan Jenkins has has shared that it's a it's a pretty strong uh, looking bill, uh, law now. So thank you. Um, and then what other slides do you have from your deck? Well, yeah, Washington easy.
1: Well, I just have a little final thing I might say that I, I, because I'm a Canadian midwife, I've worked up North quite a bit uh, among the Inuit and I, I discovered, I, I did a whole uh, treatise uh, um, with some of the Inuit midwives at one point and called it Heating Warnings from the Canary, the Whale and the Inuit. And it was like in the 1990s, I did this story, but I, I found this little uh, quote from Bill Phil, who was one of the OBs that worked up north. And l- Listen to this, how patriarchal this sounds. 1934, I have conducted an obstetrical clinic For the benefit of of the old women in whose hands all obstetric authority lies, at least he admitted it, little impression was made. But the important fact is that some impression, no matter how superficial, was made. Like religion, it is true. They will shortly adopt the obedient attitude. That is such a 1930s attitude. And I think the reason that ACOG has changed is because they recognize that their attitude has to change. When I, I got hired by Figo in like 19, 2004, because they said, Betty Ann, we really needed to have someone we felt um, because we think that we're becoming, ir- we we feel like we're becoming irrelevant to women. I said, "Oh, good! I'm glad you finally figured that out." Um, but I I think what's happening is ACOG as an organization is recognizing they have to come up, you know, meet the times. And so, just like this um, build fellow was suggesting that the women would come around, I think ACOG's realizing that they have to come around on the issue of informed choice for women, and um, uh, and. And recognize that many women do not want to go to the hospital to have their baby, so they need to know that they can have options that are state regulated, uh, that that are well integrated in home and in the birth in the birth centers in the community.
0: Mm-hmm. I couldn't agree more. You know, I um, when I began this work and I started to understand who all the stakeholders were, you know, I didn't really understand ACOG. Um, ACOG is kind of like the golden sun that came up out of the AMA. Um, and those are both trade associations. So we've really handed over policymaking, decision making to trade associations. And they don't represent the opinions of all obstetricians and gynecologists, um, but they are a very strong influence. And that time feels like it's changing for the better.
1: Yeah, and 27 midwives at my hospital at L'Hôpital Montfort. We come in there all the time with home birth transports because a mother is tired and she wants to have an epidural. And they don't look at her as if she's, you know, they don't, it's not hostile. They go, oh, okay, we, you need some help. Okay. It's not, it's not a hostile thing. It's it's actually a very, very streamlined situation. And it's the same with the RCOG, the Royal College of Obstetrics and Gynecology in um, Britain, who have put out their home state birth statement with the Royal College of Midwives.
0: It's true, although something unfortunate that you probably know about is that there are no insurance options currently for midwives in the UK, both uh, the, the ones with NHS as well as the private independent. The independent
1: mm-hmm. midwives. Yeah.
0: Mostly this affects the, the independent midwives, but it's a shame. Uh, it's, a, it's a tough, it's a tough uh, situation. They've just decided, again, with not a lot of evidence that it, it's um, too expensive to, to provide that insurance, but what they don't maybe realize is they're cutting off all of that care So we'll visit that another time too. Um, Well, I'm just so grateful that we've had so much time together to go through all of this. I suspect we could talk for hours more, but before we close out, I just want to ask if there's anything else, any final words of wisdom or key takeaways or any sneak peek about, you know, what you are thinking to work on next or what we should be looking for or what all this means. I just want to give you the opportunity to just say all of that.
1: In the article, we came up with two steps that we thought that would finally uh, help us to understand or help us um, on our trajectory of changing things and having solutions. The first step was to build the infrastructure of legislation, insurance, and health quality improvement programs needed to support home freestanding birth centers and hospital maternity care providers so they can be fully integrated into their local continu- continuum of care. And that's this is RMNCH. Steph, what's that stand for again? It's
0: Reproductive, maternal, newborn, and child health. Right, it's from the um,
1: organization came up with. Yeah, WHO. Right, I always forget what the acronym stands for. But the second step in the states is to encourage a culture in which all healthcare professionals recognize and encourage each other and the services for which they're suited. So that includes opening rather than limiting scope of practice, eliminating physician supervision but increasing the collaboration, encouraging autonomy of midwives and clients, and finally, it should also include debunking the myths of what is safe and not safe that's right there boom.
0: that's very helpful very precise i I love it all and there's so much we could talk about for each of these items but i have to say um opening rather than limiting scope of practice i've sat with groups and coalitions of midwives who say there's so much more that we could do if we think about the period of time after a woman has a baby and goes home, where so many complications can arise, the fourth trimester, if you will. Midwives often do house calls. They can go to a home and they can look into the eyes of the woman. They can see if she's in pain and where that pain is. And if, if there's something wrong, they can identify it. There are so many instances where we, we know that care is not provided. So I just wanted to call that one out. There there is so much more that could be done This is really wonderful. I, I think also um, the debunking myths of what is safe and not safe, I, I feel so strongly that it's hard to say it, it's hard to um, maybe acknowledge it, but there are risks in birth. There are risks in birth in out-of-hospital settings and hospital settings. And, and to the extent that we can get really honest about what those are and what we do as a society to increase them or decrease them, that would be really helpful. David, please share with us any parting thoughts or wisdom that you would like.
2: I don't think I have any parting shots. Thank you for the opportunity, though, and thank you for all that you're doing.
0: Absolutely. We do hope to have you all back. Um, there will be some opportunity, something that will happen that will it'll make sense to, to, to have another conversation. Um, but we're very grateful you've joined us today on Where's My Midwife? A podcast. And we look forward to reading more of your research in the weeks and years to come. Thank you so much. Mm